Amen. You take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And uh, you may find that to be a strange text on a morning like this, Palm Sunday, as we've already said, or I don't even remember all the P's, but the proclamation of the Prince of Peace in power and praise. I knew I'd forget one. Um, but uh, but I, I hope you find the connection as we go through this sermon. <clears throat> the connection is there, I hope. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. You know, in a text like this, leadership is at issue. And, and le- leadership is really an issue in our world today. In organizations in our world, in the church of our world in the United States, and, I, and this is a unique year, an election year. We experience every four years where we will select a new leader for our nation this year, in 2012. And right now, all of the possible leaders are making their case for why they are the right leader for the next four years. The perfect leader to lead our great nation in the coming years. TV is eat up with leadership one of the most popular shows on TV, The Apprentice. The whole premise of the show is that Donald Trump finds a leader who can lead one of his corporations or businesses, and we're famous tagline now. What is it? He looks across the table when they fail. You're fired. He might as well look at them and say, you're not a good leader. Right? Because who usually gets fired? The leader of the losing team. The one who failed to organize the task and get everyone on the same page in enough time to accomplish successfully their goal. They weren't good leaders. And so he says, you're fired. Nobody puts bad leaders, nobody should ever put bad leaders in charge of multi-million dollar corporations. And so... Leadership is a hot topic. It's a hot issue in all the organizations of our world, in the United States as a political entity. It is a big issue this year, even on TV and especially in sports. Every team in sports is looking for the leader, whether he be the coach and then the assistant coaches, and then they need the perfect field general in a quarterback. The Denver Broncos needed a leader, right? They needed a leader. Don't act like you don't know what the NFL is. And that the biggest story in the NFL offseason has been what? Peyton Manning. I can't believe I said his name, but I did. Why was he so coveted? Why is he so coveted? He's injured. He's an old man in football terms. Why was he so coveted? Because there's nobody in football today that commands the presence that Peyton Manning does on the field of football. Nobody knows football the way he does offensively. Nobody gets players in the right place, calls his own plays and his own audibles the way this one does. He is the premier leader in the NFL. And so they're willing to pay him millions and millions and millions of dollars with a fractured neck and three surgeries. Because leadership is important. And you know what they said when they hired him? John Elway was questioned about what if he doesn't come back? What if he can't play? He said, we'll have the best quarterback coach in the whole league. 
Why? Because he's a leader. He's a fantastic leader. The apprentice is looking for leaders. The nation's looking for leaders. Every organization's scouring for great leadership. The church is no different. The church in the West, especially in the United States, has become fixated on leadership. <clears throat> not so much good preaching, not so much good pastoral skill, but what churches look for today in the search process is a CEO. Someone who can run the church like a business and get the maximum profit out of the people. The maximum potential out of the people. That's what everyone's looking for. They'll sacrifice holiness, sacrifice skill with God's Word to have a great leader of a good organization. Leadership is prominent in our culture. In our church culture, just like our the culture that surrounds us, the world that surrounds us. Sadly, the local church is being led today by men poorly prepared for preaching and teaching and feeding the flock of God, but they could be leading some of them Fortune 500 companies. But this isn't a new problem for the people of God, mimicking the culture around them. This is a culture, this is a problem, this is a cultural problem that has existed in God's people Always, always they have wanted to mimic the culture around them more than be different than the culture around them. Today's text is all about leadership. Today's text is all about finding good leadership. Let's read the text together. And it's a narrative text I want to read here for you. This text is coming on the heels of Samuel, the great judge, the one who has judged rightly and purely. Remember, Samuel, from the first chapter of this book, was shown to us to be one who was raised by Eli the priest, left there by his mother, Hannah, after she had begged the Lord for a son. She promised to give him over, if God blessed her with a son, to give him over to God's service all the days of his life. Samuel was raised in the temple by Eli. Remember, Eli was a good trainer of priests and a terrible daddy. He was a terrible daddy. What do we know about Eli's sons? They were crooks. They were thieves. They were not honest men. They died off in battle against the Philistines. And when they die, and Eli receives the word, Eli falls over. He's become so lazy and fat that he busts his innards when he falls from his stool. Gives you a little picture of the lack of discipline. And the lack of leadership in Eli's life. Eli was a good priest. His sons were not. Samuel becomes a great judge, but chapter 7 tells us his sons are not like him. They're not good leaders. Unfortunately, not only did Samuel learn from Eli how to lead the people of God, he learned also how to not be a good daddy. His sons take over for him. And he, he divides the kingdom uh, the, the people into the north and the south. And he puts himself in charge of the north and he puts his two sons in charge of the south. Now leading into the context here, let's look at uh, chapter 7 and then we'll look on down. Chapter 7, verse 15. <clears throat> it says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. 
and he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba in the south. Yet his sons did not walk in his way, but turned aside after grain. You see that? They're not just. They don't act like their father. They are unjust. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out before of, uh, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And we also may, that we may also be like the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. What we read here is a people longing for a leader. They're longing for a king. First of all, in the first three verses, we see that transition... From one leadership to another requires commitment to wait on the Lord. If we're going to transition as the people of God, the people of God here were transitioning from one leader to another, they needed to be patient waiting for the timing of the Lord. Now, what is it about this judge system? Maybe you're not familiar with it. Let me try to quickly familiarize you with this system. Judges were set up once the people had come into the land of Canaan. They had conquered the promised land. And the judges were selected by prayer from God. They were not successive. 
They didn't, in other words, rise up out of the same family. There wasn't a tribe known as the tribe of judges. Okay? They were selected individually through times of prayer. They arose in times of need. They came with a word from God for a specific time in a specific place. And they led the people to great victory, generally, over sin and their physical enemies. And the order was restored and peace was regained. And the prosperity began to gather again. But the problem in the book of Judges is we see a cycle occurs. Always cycle. There's sin. The people repent. God sends a judge. He wins a great victory. The people lead into prosperity, which leads them to forget God, head act into sin, and now they're stuck under some other problem or some other foreign nation. And so God raises up a new judge when they cry out to Him. And this cycle goes over and over again through time. Until we reach Samuel. Samuel was the last great judge of the people of Israel. And what did Samuel do that was different than the other judges? As great a man as he was, he didn't wait on God, did he? Look what he does in the first three verses. Samuel's old. He knows he's going to die. So what does he do? He appoints his sons. As judges over Israel. God didn't tell him to do this. There's nowhere where God commands Samuel to take this step. Samuel does this. He didn't patiently wait on the Lord's leadership in the time of transition. He got anxious and nervous. And he rushed to judgment. We've got to have stability. I can hear him thinking now, can't you? Well, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get old and die. And then who's going to lead the people? Well, they need a leader. He did what looked, looked acceptable in his day. He appointed his sons as leaders. He didn't wait patiently. He ran ahead of the Lord. We see it in the text. He began this process of not waiting on God. And the people follow suit. They always follow their leaders, don't they? His sons did not walk in his way, verse 3 says but turned aside after grain. They took bribes and perverted justice. They did not justly judge the people. The people won't stand for being mistreated by one of their own, especially, as you can imagine, the sons of Samuel. Not Samuel himself, but his sons. So this transition is going to require waiting on the Lord, and they don't wait on the Lord. Secondly, we see that we have to recognize, the people needed to recognize, and we need to recognize, that when we reject God's plan for leadership, then we actually reject God Himself. Look at chapter 8, verses 4 through 9, where we see the rejection of God's system. Look at what the people say in verse 5. Behold, you are old. Your sons are not like you. They don't walk in your way. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us, what? Like all the nations. They rejected God's system. God had established a system of leadership in the people from their time in Egypt on. First, it was Moses the great prophet of the people of Israel who led them through the exodus and into the wilderness, received the law of God. Then it was Joshua. God said, appoint Joshua as the next leader. 
the son of Nun, your servant. He shall lead the people. Then God raised up these judges successfully to lead the people in repentance, bring them into the promised land, conquer the whole land. And now at this time in their history, the land is conquered. The people are there. And they need a leader. But they don't want a leader like God. What do they want? A leader like all the other nations. Now why do I draw this point out? Why, why do I know? How do I know they have rejected God as their leader? Well, because God in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, had given them the prescription that they should have followed. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20 reads like this. This is God speaking. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you from whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay? The reason I know they have rejected God's system and God's leadership is because this is the text they should have gone to to select their king. They needed a king. Nobody disputes that. The nation had matured to the point of having a king. But they didn't turn to God in His Word to find their king. Nobody, not Samuel himself, rose up and said, God already told us what to do in this case. The land is conquered. We're in all of its places. There is a need for a king. We should pray and seek God that He might give us a king. God says, in prophecy of what was coming in Deuteronomy, He says, you will say, we need a king like all the other nations. It's interesting. One, here's what he says. You may indeed have a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers. Now God's describing their king. One from among your brothers. You shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So first of all, he must be an Israelite. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He can't lead them back to Egypt to be wealthy, to get their strength from the world. Second stipulation. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom." He and his children in Israel. God had provided for them a system for selecting a king. It included seeking God. Seek God for your king. Not your own way. Find from yourself a man like you, one of your brothers, who is set on God's law. Who has a copy of God's law with him 
constantly so he might know God's ways and dictate to the nation God's ways, not rule for his own power, lifting up his heart above everyone else, not amassing great wealth, and not leading them back to Egypt. God had already provided a system for having a king. But what happens in our text? Look what it says in verse 5. We want a king like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Why did it displease him? Because they're rejecting God as their king. Samuel sees this. He knows this. But God gives them what they ask for. After rejecting God's system of leadership, we must realize that always comes with consequences. When we reject God's leadership, it always comes with a consequence. Verse 10 says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people. He did what God told him. He told all the words of the Lord to the people. And what are the consequences? Verse 11, The king will rule over you. He'll take your sons. He'll build for himself a great army and make your sons be his servants. He's not only going to do that, but he's going to take your harvest, your grain and your vineyard harvest, and take a tenth of that for himself. What's he going to become? A rich, powerful leader. Like all the other nations. You want a king like all the other nations? I'll give you a king. Like all the other nations, God says. He's going to tax you heavily. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your land. He's going to be a tyrant to rule over you. You don't want God as your leader? God's saying, you don't want me? I'll give you what you want. But you'll suffer the consequence. And the people of Israel do. Finally, we see that God, after this, that God will not hear them. God is not interested in answering their prayer. Look what it says at the last verse, verse 22. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Okay, so God lets them have the king. But in verse 18, he had told them what would happen. In the day you cry out because of your king, who I'm going to give you. I'm going to obey your voice. I'm going to give you what you want and the consequences that come from it. And you're going to cry out to me. And what did God say? I won't answer. I won't hear you. I will not relieve your suffering. We have this Old Testament narrative sitting here at the, really the turning point from the judges to the kings. We have this law from Deuteronomy, verse, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, where God said, you can have a king. Do you notice the problem? Do you notice the problem we have when we're just looking at this text? God told them they could have a king. Now God's punishing them because they asked for a king. What are we missing? What are we not seeing? I think what we're missing, what we're not seeing clearly, is that the heart of the people is what God is displeased in. It's not the request they made necessarily, but the way they made the request. They don't want God. They don't want His leadership. They have rejected Him. This narrative is a backdrop, really. Like most of the history of Israel, it simply sets the stage for us to better understand the coming of God's King.
as we look at this narrative and the narratives that surround it, we begin to familiarize ourselves with the process here in Israel. They, then in chapter 9, are going to select Saul. It's interesting. Let's look at that quickly. And then I want to run through and show you where I find the fulfillment of this text. Where I find the actual point of the text. The fulfillment of it. Look what it says in chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerar, the son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son named Saul, a handsome young man. There was not among, among the people of Israel anyone more handsome than he. He was shoulders above. He was head and shoulders above all of the people. Now they're going to choose this to be their king, Saul. Here's where we see the heart of the people. This statement, we want a leader like all the other nations, is fulfilled in the selection of Saul. They wanted a handsome, strong, powerful, wealthy leader. Because that's what all the other nations had. The heart is exposed in who they choose. Not that they ask for a king. God had already provided for them to have a king. Their heart is exposed in who they select. Saul. And the criteria they use to select him. Handsome, tall, strong, wealthy. The people's heart is exposed. They have rejected God. The truth is, they had a king. His name is Yahweh. You see, when he chose them as his people, he said they were his special possession. Of all the people of the world, you, Israel, are my possession. He had set himself up as their king by delivering them from their enemy, Egypt. When they were in slavery... He delivered them. Not only did He deliver them from Egypt and its slavery, but when He brought them into the desert, He guarded them like a king would guard His people. Remember, He put the pillar of cloud between the Egyptians and the Israelites at the bank of the Red Sea. And He made a passageway for their escape while He led the people of Pharaoh to be, the army of Pharaoh to be confused, disheartened by this separation, this cloud, this barrier. Then God lifted Himself up and the army fled down into the Red Sea. The nation of Israel defeated the greatest army on the earth without lifting a sword. We're not even told they had swords. I'm sure they did, but nobody fought. Who defeated their enemy? God defeated their enemy. Why? Because Yahweh was their king. They're asking for something they already have, but they've rejected Him in their heart. And they go to something that looks like the world rather than God. They don't want God, you notice. You see this? See what they're doing? They're mimicking the culture around them. They're not setting themselves apart to follow the leadership of God. Not only did He deliver them, but He delivered His law to them. That's exactly what a king does. He gives His people the way they shall live at Mount Sinai. And He leads them into the land. 
And the Bible tells us in the book of Joshua that he defeated the enemies of Israel with hornets and bees. When the conquering of Joshua and all his great army is retold in history, it's not that Israel had a great army. It's that God defeated their enemies for them. They had a king. His name was Yahweh. He had chosen them as His possession. He had led them from Egypt. He had crossed the Red Sea, defeated the greatest army on earth, and given them a law, and now given them a land flowing with milk and honey. Samuel, we don't want that king. We want a king that's powerful, wealthy, handsome, that can rule over us like all the other nations have. We know what happens with Saul, don't we? He becomes tyrannical in his leadership, oppressive. He taxes them heavily. He forces them into forced fighting. Many of their sons are taken off to war and die and never return. God then chooses for Himself a king. God goes about the process differently. In fulfillment of Deuteronomy 17 in the office that he had set up, God told Samuel at the end of his life, go to Jesse. One of his sons will be the king. Do you remember that? He got the most handsome, strongest, most powerful of all the brothers. No. He got a shepherd boy with a terrible complexion. The least. He was so least, his daddy didn't even remember him. He parades all the sons through and Samuel says, none of these boys are it. Do you not have any other sons? Oh yeah. Son number eight. He, but he's slight. He's little. He's a runt. He's out there tending the sheep. Surely he's not the one you're looking for. I guess go get him when he comes in from the field and Samuel sees him. What does God say? This is your king. He puts him on his knees and he anoints him with oil. And this is God's king over his people. David. A shepherd, a musician, not wealthy but poor, not lifted above them, not even noticeable to them. That's who God chose as his king. The king after God's own heart. A shepherd king, one of your brothers from among you, who will follow me in all of his ways. He will have my book in his face constantly and he will follow me. He will be like me. Isn't that a good description of David's life? He was a man after God's own heart. So we have a contrast. Chapter 8, the people want a king like all the nations. They select Saul, utter failure. 
They don't wait on God. They reject God in His process and they make for themselves their own king like all the other nations. God, on the other hand, according to Deuteronomy 17, chose a king from among them. Poor, simple, humble shepherd. Set him up a man after his own heart, reading the law of God. We don't need to guess whether David loved God's law because we have Psalm 19 and we have Psalm 119. We know he loved God's word. He ate it like the fruit of a honeycomb. But what is God trying to show us? Because see, it's easy to sit here in the 21st century and say, Israel should have waited on God. Israel should have chosen a king like God. Israel should have just been different and set apart, not like all the other nations. And this isn't the only time they'll struggle. Take your Bible and turn to Matthew 21, the text that's already been read for you. See, what we have in the Old Testament is a picture. It's a shadow. It's real history, but it sets the stage for God's ultimate work. We move from Saul, the cut-off line. His line ends and a new line has begun. God doesn't allow the, 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 the sin of the people to change His plan. He appoints David. David is his king. Moves to Solomon. Solomon unites the kingdom to its zenith of power. And then his sons are a tragedy of losing the kingdom. The kingdom is divided. The people are led into exile. And God falls silent for 400 years. No word from God. No king. Until we come to Mark. And in Mark, we find Jesus. In Mark, we find Jesus healing the sick. Raising up a paralytic, giving sight to a blind, ruling over the demons, calming a storm, walking on water, feeding 25,000 people in one sitting. Probably 16,000 plus in another time. We find Jesus going from city to city, casting out spirits, healing the sick and feeding the poor. He announced His kingdom by saying, the Scripture is fulfilled which told you I will set the captive free, give sight to the blind, and cause the lame to walk. My kingdom has come. He announced His coming in Mark chapter 1 by saying the kingdom of God has come near. And then in Matthew 21, after this long period of ruling the people through His loving acts of kindness, like a good shepherd, He enters Jerusalem for the final time. And this is an amazing scene, like Aaron said. A scene unequaled anywhere else that we know of. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. He crests the hill heading into Jerusalem. Coming through the valley, you can almost see him now headed to the Temple Mount. Surrounded in a sea of lambs. He chose a donkey 
Because that's how a conquering king entered a city. Not on a war steed, but on a donkey. See, he wasn't, don't misunderstand what he was doing. He wasn't coming humbly into Jerusalem. He was coming proclaiming himself as king. The people recognized it. When they saw him coming on the foal of a donkey, what did they do? They welcomed him as a king. They threw down their coats before him to make a straight way for him. They waved the palm branches, which was honor and tribute to a great king. And they cried out before him, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The son of David has shown up in Jerusalem and they're hailing him as their king. They rejected God in 1 Samuel 8. But now it appears they're accepting God in Matthew 21. Have they learned their lesson? Have they finally come to grips with the fact that they are to be God's people? Are they going to accept Him as their King? No. Matthew 27 tells us this. Verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor... And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner from whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? They've just held him as their king. He's ridden in on the foal of a donkey. He's been paraded through the streets of Jerusalem as the Messiah. Who do you want? The Messiah or Barabbas? For he knew that it was out of, the, out of envy that they had delivered him up. But besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ, Messiah? The one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King. What do you want me to do with this King? Let him be crucified. And he said, Wow, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So, Just like the people in 1 Samuel 8, the people of Israel again reject their king. They seem to welcome him, but then they reject him. They have him crucified. It's pitiful, isn't it? Really, when you think about it. It's sad. The greatest, most passionate and loving man hung on a tree. For no evil. Out of hatred. The king. 
enthroned on a piece of wood. But you do it every day. I do it every day. It's easy to point fingers at Israel in 1 Samuel 8. It's easy to point fingers at them in Matthew 27. Oh, I would have been different. No. Why? Because right now you're pursuing... Right now in your life, you're pursuing the ways of this world and the things the kings of this world have to offer. Your finances reflect it. Your marriage reflects it. The way you parent your children reflect it. Every day you're being asked, who will you serve? A king like all the other nations are the king of kings and lord of lords. And by the little decisions you make, it becomes obvious. His word is really laid on a shelf. Week by week, you bring it to church. You study it here. You know enough to get through a conversation. But he's not the lord of your life. What will you have us do with this king, this Messiah, this Christ? That piercing question is the question for us today. Because see, in our leadership-crazed culture, it's not popular any longer to serve a king we can't see. We want a king like all the other nations. It's outdated to follow a book that was written thousands of years ago. We want leadership manuals written for the 21st century. It's not, it's not in step with the world to base my life, my finances, my marriage, my parenting, my selection of friends and how I spend time with them. It's not popular to do that based on this book. But rather, I want a handsome, tall, strong, powerful, wealthy king. Not an insignificant one. You see, every day we make the decision, just like the people of Israel, I'm afraid. In our words and in our actions and our deeds, we crucify Christ anew. Oh, I know it's painful to think in those terms and you can even excuse it because Carlton life's hard to live and we all sin but the question is what will you do with the Christ some of you don't know him some of you have a relationship with him he is the king God's chosen servant What will you do with him? Let's pray. Father, as we close this time and